Hey, Matt Teichman here from Elucidations. I just want to say thanks very much for all the iTunes reviews. They've been very helpful, and please keep them coming. As always, you can find us on Twitter at at elucidationspod, and you can check out our blog at lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu slash blogs slash elucidations. One other thing I wanted to mention is that since August, we've been doing our hosting through a new startup called Pippa, which is pretty cool. It's actually founded by some former philosophers, and I have to say I've been very impressed so far. The service is totally free, provides detailed analytics, makes it very easy for you to migrate from your previous host to them. So all in all, it's been a very positive experience, and it's enabled us to get much more detailed stats on who's listening and when. So if you have a podcast and you're looking for a hosting service, you might check them out. They can be found at pippa.io, P-I-P-P-A dot I-O. All right, thanks. Hello and welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman, and with me today is Jennifer Lackey, Wayne and Elizabeth Jones Professor of Philosophy at Northwestern University, and she's here to discuss credibility. Jennifer Lackey, welcome. Thanks for having me, Matt. So you've been doing a lot of interesting work thinking about the ethical issues that come up in the way we attribute credibility to other people. So both attributing too little credibility to people and attributing too much credibility to people. And I guess also when things go right, attributing the right amount of credibility to people. What would be an example of like one of these, as it were, kind of like credibility misfires? So, yeah, I've been thinking a lot about, well, the norms governing our credibility assessments, how we ought to be assessing people's credibility. And... While I am interested in the ethics of credibility, I'm also interested in the epistemology of credibility. So, I mean, I guess what I would say is the project is looking both at the epistemic norms and the ethical norms. So when we properly assess someone's level of credibility, I'm interested in those cases in which we're, so to speak, in the epistemic and moral clear by virtue of that assessment. You know, there's a concept called, you know, testimonial injustice that has been the topic of a fair bit of discussion in social epistemology lately. And the core idea of it is that someone is the victim of testimonial injustice if they suffer a credibility deficit, specifically due to identity prejudice. So, for instance, if a police officer is interviewing someone who is reporting a sexual assault and doesn't regard her testimony as credible simply because she's a woman and women lie about these sorts of things, for instance. That would be a classic case in which the woman is the victim of testimonial injustice because she's suffering a credibility deficit simply because she's a woman. I mean, assuming, of course, that, you know, she's not getting the level of credibility that she deserves. The question then is, of course, what is it to get the credibility that you deserve? And a really standard view is that our credibility assessments ought to track the evidence So you get the credibility that you deserve when I judge you to be as credible as the evidence suggests you are, right? So if I judge your statement to be credible, that you were assaulted, for instance, then that is following the norm so long as I give that statement, you know, I assess it properly in relation to the evidence. Right. So I hear testimony like this. I'm the detective, let's imagine. And... 
there's evidence to back up this person's credibility. So uh, the story I got from this person fits with facts that I've independently observed. And based on interviewing other people, I found that this person is a reliable in, you know, is a reliable eyewitness to various things and doesn't get the facts wrong. So what this rule of following evidence tells us is when the evidence supports this person gives reliable testimony, we should believe them. So I think that seems right, right? If we're in this scenario and the detective has a lot of evidence that the person is a reliable witness and the story checks out and so forth, then they should believe them. So is that right? Or is there an issue with that principle? Well, so I want to separate two different ways in which someone might be the victim of testimonial injustice, even just with respect to a deficit. So one is simply not getting the credibility that you deserve and putting aside whether or not there's belief, corresponding belief, right? I mean, one is the question, are you wronged in your capacity as a knower or are you wronged as a testifier, let's say? just by virtue of me not giving you the credibility that you deserve because you're a woman or because you're black. Um, that might be an independent injustice, regardless of whether there's uptake of belief, regardless of whether I, on the basis of your testimony, come to believe what you tell me. We might say that you suffer an additional harm if I also fail to believe you. That's interesting, right? So it's like just the fact that you're not being taken seriously as a source of evidence Already that, that's a crappy experience to have, it, regardless of whether the person then goes on to believe what you said. That's exactly right. And it's really important for my work that we actually keep these separate. I don't think that the discussions of testimonial injustice are always as clear, that these are two separate wrongs. But for my work, it's really important because something that's really missing in the discussions about testimonial injustice is the harms that can be brought about via credibility surpluses. So it's kind of standard in the literature to think that testimonial injustice is linked only with credibility deficits. And this comes from this bigger picture of thinking that credibility is what's sometimes called an infinite good. So in contrast to something like wealth or land, where there's clearly a finite amount of it, right? And if I give some of it to one person, I'm clearly going to have less to give to someone else, right? Because it's finite. Credibility is often taken to be unlike that, and also that it's an infinite good. So for instance, you know, if I give you the credibility that you're owed when you tell me that you, you know, went snorkeling in Thailand this summer, I need not take any credibility away from, you know, your friend when he tells me that he went hiking, you know, he hiked Machu Picchu this summer, right? There's enough credibility to go around. And so examples like this tend to lead people to think, oh, well, credibility is an infinite good. And so we don't have to worry about credibility surpluses because you're not being wronged if you get more. I'm not taking it away from anyone else, right? So there's no kind of injustice. And so the worst that can be done to you, so says the standard view, is that you might become kind of arrogant. You might not be able to cultivate certain intellectual virtues because we're constantly thinking that you're better, you know, vis-a-vis -vis credibility than in fact you are. Right. Whereas with something like food, which is taken to be a finite resource, giving too much food to too many people just sort of by definition because it's finite involves giving not enough food to other people. That's right. And exactly. so that's the way the argument goes. Exactly. And so this has led people almost across the board to completely ignore the question of credibility surplus and the ways in which this might give rise to various kinds of problems. And so one of the things I've done in some of my recent work is really emphasize the role that credibility surpluses play in our assessment of people's credibility in general, following the norms and in questions about testimonial injustice.
Okay, so we have an example of what we're calling a credibility deficit, which is not giving somebody enough credibility, not giving them the credibility they deserve. But then what about an example of a credibility surplus? So that would be giving somebody too much credibility. What would be an example of that? Right. So, And when we talk about that credibility that they deserve, we can follow the standard view and say that that's the, what you deserve is understood in terms of the available evidence. So an example of someone getting more credibility and in a problematic way, here's like one of the classic ways in which I think it's problematic, is I mean, we can imagine as a teacher in a classroom, you have a classroom full of students. Now, suppose that you, you know, kind of think that all of your women students are very bright. And in fact, they are. Okay, and the evidence suggests that they are. So you give them all the credibility that they deserve, right? You assess them exactly properly. The standard view says you are now in the epistemic and moral clear with respect to your assessment of them. Because the standard view says follow the evidence, right? Credibility needs to track the evidence with respect to your evaluation of that token person, right? But one of the things that I point out in my work is that suppose that you also systematically give the male students in your class, a credibility surplus, right? You give them more than their fair share. And so whenever there's a disagreement, whenever there's any sort of issue that's in question, you're going to believe the men. I argue that in the case with the students, the female students are wronged both by virtue of their credibility being evaluated improperly in relation to the male students, and in them not being believed when they're not believed, right? That those are two separate wrongs. So if we just look at deficits and we think that this principle, I mean, again, I want to emphasize that this evidentialist principle says, satisfy it and you're in the epistemic and moral clear. I think this is clearly false, right? I mean, here are cases in which you're not in the epistemic and moral clear in relation to the women students, even though they're getting exactly what they ought to get in relation to the evidence, Yeah, it's really interesting. I hadn't really thought of this case before you mentioned it. But yeah, I can totally see that. It's like, it's a little bit beside the point. If you treat the female students in your class as intelligent, reliable sources of information, if you then treat everyone else in the class, like super reliable, super geniuses. That's exactly right. Yeah. And I think it's really important that they're suffering a wrong in virtue of this, even though we're satisfying the evidentialist norm that is taken to be, in a way, lie at the heart of testimonial injustice. So satisfy this evidentialist norm, and you're in the clear, epistemically and morally. And here are cases in which you're clearly satisfying it, right? There's no question about that, and you're absolutely not in the epistemic and moral clear. Do you think we could argue that doing so also wrongs the male students in the class, and that their ability to give information is being overestimated? Well... That's specifically the kind of case that proponents of the evidentialist norm reject. I mean, like that they reject that the male students are actually suffering a wrong, that they are victims of a wrong by virtue of the surplus in and of itself. But I think that there are cases in which we can imagine that by virtue of getting a surplus, you are wronged in your capacity as a knower. So one thing I want to just distinguish I think would be helpful for the discussion is that people like Miranda Fricker, like proponents of the evidentialist norm, distinguish between primary wrongs and secondary wrongs. And so one of the things that she introduces that's really interesting is that simply by virtue of, you know, kind of my assessment of you not corresponding with that evidentialist norm, she thinks that you're suffering a primary wrong. In particular, you're being wronged in your capacity as a knower, even if it doesn't beget any further downstream wrongs, right? So we might imagine that like, I don't give you the credibility that the evidence says I should give you, and then nothing else happens. 
She wants to say you still suffered a wrong, a primary wrong. I agree with that. And then there might be further ones. You might be denied employment opportunities. You might, you know, not have the police investigate your, you know, claim of being sexually assaulted. You might not have the prosecution take it up because, you know, you're suffering a credibility deficit. There's all sorts of further downstream, really serious harms that you can suffer and wrongs that can be done to you. But these are two separate ones. Proponents of the evidentialist norm want to say that you can't suffer a primary wrong in cases of surplus. So the male students, even if there are downstream wrongs like or harms, like they fail to cultivate intellectual virtues because they're really arrogant and so on, there's no immediate wrong that's being done to them by virtue of getting a surplus. And like I said, I think this is really connected with this idea that credibility is an infinite good. I think that picture is wrong. So for instance, one of the things I've argued is that we can imagine certain domains being highly stigmatized or on the lower end of the spectrum, we have, we could just say devalued, but on the other end of the spectrum, we can have like downright stigmatized or being kind of domains where like knowledge of those areas might be, you know, kind of shameful or something like that. And we can imagine that like, for instance, someone says, oh, you know, you're a black man. You must know about guns or drugs or, you know, something like that. And I want to say that by virtue of my giving you a credibility surplus, oh, you must be an expert on drugs or guns because you're black, there's a wrong being done to you in your capacity as knower just as much, perhaps even more so than if I say, oh, you know, you must not know about Shakespeare because of your race or your sex or something like that. So that's a case in which I think you suffer actually a primary, there's a primary wrong being done to you in virtue of a credibility surplus. So it seems like in that case, the wrong is connected to the fact that maybe there's like a pernicious stereotype about people of my group, and I don't want to be settled with that stereotype. I want people to just assume nothing at all about whether I know anything about guns or drugs. I don't want somebody to assume that I'm an expert in these things, these stigmatized things, right. just because I belong to a group. Right. Exactly. And what, there's a spectrum of it, right? Like, you know, you're a woman, so you must be, you know, know about baking, but I think it's really most clear in cases where the domain is stigmatized and we're attributing knowledge to you or expertise precisely because of your race or your sex or something like that. And you can imagine, you know, there's like a white man and a black man and someone's like, oh, wait, how do you load a gun? And they turn to the, oh, well, you must know. You can imagine him being kind of indignant, like, what? I don't know about that. Why would you think that I know about that? Just as much as someone would be like, why would you assume I don't know about Shakespeare just because I'm a member of this underrepresented group or something like that. I mean, you can imagine, I think the indignation, I mean, we can imagine cases in which it's even greater in the case of being attributed, having knowledge attributed to you, especially stigmatized knowledge, simply in virtue of your race or your sex or your gender. Yeah. And I think it seems intuitive that, right, for some skill that we think of as being like bad or evil, there would be a stigma associated with being an expert in that. You know, if you're an expert in, I don't know, torture or something, right. that's something that it's bad to be an expert in. It's not always good to be an expert. Absolutely. I think that's right. And then, of course, we can certainly imagine secondary wrongs coming from this surplus as well, right? I mean, so, you know, the police show up, there's a gun that had been, you know, someone had used it. There's a black man, there's a white man, you know, well, must be the black man because he's got the expertise in using it or something like that, right? I mean, we can certainly imagine where these credibility surpluses give rise to, you know, further wrongs and or harms later on. But I also really want to emphasize the point that I think that there's this primary 
wrong being done just by virtue of being attributed with that knowledge or being regarded as a knower in that stigmatized domain. So I also have the intuition that even in the case of a form of expertise, you know, that's highly valued, even there, it could be a way of wronging the person like presuming I'm an expert in nuclear physics or something, just pick something that's valued. Even that it feels like saddles me with a lot of responsibility like it, and it's a burden to have that extra responsibility if I don't, in fact, have the knowledge. That's a great point. And in fact, Miranda discusses a case, just Miranda Fricker discusses a case very much like this, where I believe it's like medical knowledge, where like my being, you know, kind of giving you too much credibility brings about all of this like practical or pragmatic, you know, kind of drain on you, right? I mean, like people are coming to you and asking you this and using your time and that sort of thing. But again, she thinks those are secondary. You know, interesting. And so, what I really wanted to argue is that the literal regard, being regarded as a knower of this information, as an expert on guns, or you know how to load them, or you know drugs, or how do you use the syringe, or something like that, that very attribution is wronging you, regardless of anything that comes downstream from it. I think the case that you give is is one in which a proponent of the evidentialist norm would actually agree with it. They would just say those are secondary. So we've focused on cases in which I give other people too much credibility, and then that can be both a wrong done to them and a wrong done to other people who aren't getting that extra like credibility bump. What about how credible I judge my own assessments of things to be? Like if I take myself to be too reliable of a judge of various things, it seems like that could lead to kind of like overconfidence. So is that a form of like wronging myself? Good. So, I mean, this is something that I've explored in, in, in some of my work. And I think this is actually not uncommon. There's empirical evidence that says it's not uncommon. Um, so remember the case of the students in the classroom. Part of the problem was this kind of what I might call relational or distributive injustice, right? I'm in relation to one another the women students are not getting their due, so to speak, even if they're getting their due vis-a-vis the evidence in relation to the male students, they're suffering an injustice. I think we often do this with respect to ourselves as well, and I think that it's parallel. So we can imagine, I mean, I think this comes up many, many times in cases of disagreement, right? We are in a disagreement with someone, and we might even regard our interlocutor as highly intelligent, as, you know, kind of, we might assess that person exactly in accordance with the evidence, right? We might be giving them exactly their due. It's just that we always give ourselves a little bump, right? We give ourselves a credibility surplus. And one of the things that I think, I think it's, this whole conversation has been absent from the literature on testimonial injustice. And one of my, one hypothesis for this is that I think that people are very sensitive to implicit bias. I think people are very sensitive to the idea now that we're disposed to assess people, you know, on the basis of their gender, their race, their, you know, these sorts of, and, and to kind of downgrade them because of these social statuses. But I think that the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is named after um, two Cornell psychology professors, it's characterized as a cognitive bias where unskilled individuals take themselves to have like this illusory superiority, right? So they take themselves to be experts or to be far better. I mean, another way of understanding it is just like radical overassessment. And it's taken to be, I mean, it's been shown to be fairly widespread and prevalent, in particular in certain domains, for instance, with respect to driving. Presumably, we all radically over-assess our driving abilities. 
And so guilty as charged. Yeah, right. Um, and in fact, I mean, Dunning had a recent piece come out in the Pacific Standard, and the title of it is We Are All Confident Idiots. And he's actually arguing how potentially harmful this bias is in global and local ways. So Daniel Kahneman recently wrote that this bias, I mean, this is a quote, he said, it leads governments to believe that wars are quickly winnable and capital projects will come in on budget despite statistics predicting exactly the opposite. So this Dunning-Kruger effect has real harm, both at the local level and at the global level, right? I mean, um, I mean, especially thinking about someone like Donald Trump these days, right? I mean, we can imagine what overconfidence could do were he to end up in office, right? I mean, this is exactly the example that Kahneman gives, you know, leads governments to believe that wars are quickly winnable, right? I mean, we can imagine. And so one of the things that's really I think is really important is that conversations about testimonial injustice have centered exclusively, entirely on credibility deficits. But when we think about credibility surpluses, both with respect to, like, for instance, our assessment of students, but also in relation to ourselves, I think it becomes really clear how important it is to focus on credibility surpluses and how much they can bring about instances of testimonial injustice. So, for instance, if we're prone to, you know, very, very frequently assessing ourselves far above what, in fact, our abilities are, then we should really be taking note of this, really be kind of factoring this in when we disagree with someone and we're really ready to kind of say, to dismiss them in favor of our own views. We ought to be aware of the fact that we're probably giving ourselves a credibility bump rather frequently. And so these surpluses, I think, can not only beget obviously very, very serious downstream harms and wrongs like war, but also the more primary one where I'm wronging my interlocutors by constantly thinking I'm I must be right. So one question I think that arises here is how universal is the Dunning-Kruger effect? So how prone are we, like, are we all prone to be too generous in our assessment of our own ability to get things right? Because I mean, like, I'm sure we all have that friend that we're constantly sitting down and having a conversation with and saying, no, you got to believe in yourself more and you have to have more confidence. And, you know, that's how you're going to get that promotion and et cetera, et cetera. So what's happening in those cases? Is it like, well, we have this, you know, inherent tendency to be overconfident, but that's overlaid within certain specific areas, we tend to be less confident? Or um, is it just some of us that have this bias? Or Well, one thing that's really fascinating about the Dunning-Kruger effect, I mean, I don't know if this is going to get at exactly your question, but one of the things is that the more skilled you are, the less you succumb to it. So the Dunning-Kruger effect, in a way, has two aspects to it. One is that the unskilled are overconfident, And then on the other hand, the highly skilled individuals tend to underestimate their relative competence. So they kind of erroneously assume that tasks which are easy for them are also easy for others. So they are not giving proper credibility assessments in the other direction, right? So the unskilled are overconfident. And then the highly skilled are like, oh, this is really easy for me. So it must be easy for everyone, right? So they're not doing the assessments in the right way. I mean, just as with anything, I mean, like people tend to be very egoistic, but then you have your, you know, I mean, attend to doesn't mean that there can't be the exceptions. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think yeah, in yeah. Gen- yeah. Like, I think in general, we tend to be overconfident. And mm-hmm. even the friend that we were always saying, like, no, 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 come on, you can write this paper, you can finish that degree, you can do this, might also still think that they're a way better driver. <laughs> okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. So we might find that even people 
who aren't confident enough in their own abilities in one area might still overestimate their abilities in other areas. For, yeah, Absolutely. so and driving certainly seems to be a case where Absolutely. everybody overestimates their. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. So another thing that you've written about is the difference between the evidence you actually have available to you and the evidence that you should have available to you, but maybe you actually don't. What would be some examples of a case where, like, I ought to have some evidence, but I don't? Good, right. So this comes up in the context, again, of the evidentialist norm. So remember that the evidentialist norm says that I'm in the epistemic and moral clear in relation to testimonial injustice, so long as I give you the credibility that you do in relation to the evidence that I have. Um, Now, on this view, we can see that, for instance, a white supremacist who believes that, you know, kind of members of various underrepresented groups are inferior in all sorts of ways. We can imagine a white supremacist actually satisfying this norm by virtue of forming his racist beliefs or her racist beliefs on the basis of the evidence that he or she has available to them. But they do this, they have this available evidence precisely because they're avoiding contact with all evidence to the contrary. I mean, this happens frequently with cults, right? I mean, you know, there's a deliberate attempt, sometimes on the part of others, sometimes it's self-imposed, to shield oneself or to shield others and, you know, from any evidence to the contrary. And so it seems really problematic for there to be a norm that says you're in the clear, epistemically and morally, just by virtue of forming your beliefs in accordance with the evidence you do have, even though there's all of this other evidence we would say you ought to have. I mean, I think the clearest examples where this is a problem are those where you're deliberately avoiding evidence that is in conflict with your own beliefs. Those are classic cases in which I think you're clearly violating a norm. And we might even think that you're the person whose credibility you're assessing is the victim of testimonial injustice because you're saying, yeah, you're unreliable. I mean, so suppose like you know, kind of a police officer just like looks at all of his own anecdotal evidence and says, another person claiming sexual assault, totally unreliable based on my anecdotal evidence. That might actually satisfy the evidentialist norm because he's doing, making absolutely no attempt to get evidence to the contrary or actually positively avoiding evidence to the contrary. Right. So in other words, if we want to get things right in how much we trust testimony from other people, we have to be responsive not just to what evidence we actually have, but we have to be like willing to go out looking for the right amount of evidence or something. Yeah. I mean, I think that we need to be, I mean, the way I put it is we need to be evidence, not sensitive, not just to the evidence we have, but to the evidence that we ought to have. And of course, Cashing out evidence that we ought to have is going to take nuance and it's going to take work. But I think that we have some very clear paradigmatic examples of cases in which we ought to have evidence that we don't, in fact, have. Right. So it's not going to be an acceptable excuse for me to say, well, I'm just neutral on whether the earth is round or flat. That's right. Because I I don't have any evidence that the earth is round because all I do is just sit in my room all day and look at the wall. Uh, That's not going to be considered responsible. That's exactly right. You're like, but look, my evidence actually supports this belief. Right? How can you say that I'm in the wrong as an epistemic agent? No, no, that's just not going to cut it. And we would say the same thing morally, I think, as well, right? I mean, look, I mean, victims of sexual assault are just unreliable, right? I mean, they're just liars, right? I mean, we wouldn't think that that's morally acceptable either because there's tons of evidence that disputes that. Okay, so what do you think would be the best way to make sure we both don't give uh, the testimony we hear from other people to little credibility 
and that we also don't give it too much credibility. And also, what would be a way to make sure that we are not only receptive to the evidence we actually do have about how credible somebody's testimony is, but also that we make sure to go out there and gather all the evidence we ought to gather about how credible their testimony is? Good. So I defend what I call um, a wide norm of credibility, but I mean, the name is sort of, it doesn't really matter that much. I mean, the core idea is that, look, if the aim is to have a norm that captures when we are in the epistemic and moral clear, vis-a-vis the question of testimonial injustice specifically, not in our lives, right, but with respect to specifically the question of testimonial injustice, we're looking for a norm such that when it's followed, we're in the epistemic and moral clear with respect to that question. As you said, there are two things that we need to capture. So my view says that all of these assessments have to be done relationally. And by that, I mean in relation to a context or a community. You know, obviously work is going to need to be done to say, you know, we're members of all sorts of contexts and all sorts of communities. And so how do we individuate those? And I've got some things to say. But the core idea that I want to get out today is that we cannot have a norm that just says we are only going to be looking at our assessment of the credibility of this person independent of his or her role in a broader context. So for instance, if we're talking about the classroom, you know, the or my earlier example in which there's an injustice, what I call a distributive or relational injustice with respect to the female students, obviously the context there would be the classroom, right? And so my norm says that what we ought to do is take that context, and sometimes we're part of the context or community. So that's really important for our concerns about the Dunning-Kruger effect, right, and giving ourselves a credibility surplus. We're in the clear with respect to this norm when our assessments of all of the relevant members of that community match the evidence, okay? And it's not just the evidence that we do have, it's the evidence that we ought to have. And there's work that's been done on trying to cash out that ought to, right? I mean, um, there's been work that's been done on normative defeaters and and just even cash, trying to understand that notion. So I'm, I'm not going to take that up today. But the main point, the takeaway point for the conversation today is that the norm that we need to follow has to be sensitive to how fundamentally social we are, right? I mean, like we can't, credibility assessments, I think, just don't make sense independently of our assessment of other people's when the goal is epistemic justice and moral justice, right? It just doesn't make sense. And secondly, it also is just wrongheaded, I think, to just be looking at the evidence that we do have. It's so easy to limit our evidence. And we would be satisfying norms all over the place if we were just looking at that evidence. So those are the two key points, I think, that any appropriate norm of credibility assessments has to include. Yeah, and in a way, I think that's very intuitive because, you know, testimony is a social phenomenon anyway, right? There's no such thing. I mean, I guess you could maybe testify something to yourself, but that seems like a strange case. It's like the standard case is I have some information and I tell somebody else about it. So in a way, I think that's kind of a natural fit for the subject matter, what you just said. Yeah, I mean, certainly there are soliloquies and we testify maybe in our diaries and that sort of thing. But I mean, certainly when we're, much of the time when we're interested in the epistemology of testimony, we're interested in this deeply social kind of way of acquiring knowledge. And I think assessing other people's credibility is fundamental to that enterprise. Jennifer Lackey, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Matt. It's really been a pleasure. If you have any questions about today's episode, give us a holler on Twitter at at elucidationspod. And as always, you can post a comment to our blog at lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu, 
slash blogs slash elucidations. On the blog, you can also explore our full back catalog of previous episodes. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for listening.